Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Ross Kemp. Over the last 18 years, I've made some 90-odd documentaries predominantly in hostile environments, from Afghanistan to Syria, from El Salvador to the Congo. And it's fair to say that during that time, I found myself in a few interesting situations. I've been shot at, tear gassed, had knives pulled on me, and spears thrown at me. But in all those years, what's impressed me the most is the resilience of the human spirit. Our ability, no matter where we're from, to overcome and make it through to the other side. So, in my new series, The Kempcast, I'll be talking to some incredible individuals who all have engaging stories to tell and have themselves overcome some extremely tough moments in their lives. Right now, we're living in unprecedented times and we should be doing all we can together to get through this as safely as possible. I hope that if you subscribe to the Kempcast and hear how my guests overcame their toughest moments, it may help you overcome yours, whether you're going through one right now or you're faced with one in the future. Joining me today is forensic psychologist Kerry Danes. She spent 20 years working with the police, the prison service, and secure hospitals. Her clients have included murderers, psychopaths, and sex offenders. Kerry, thank you so much uh, for agreeing to come on the Chemcast. What is a forensic psychologist and how do you become one? Uh, with difficulty is, uh, is the straight answer to that, but a forensic psychologist is somebody who works with the criminal mind, if you like, so they apply psychological knowledge and theories to criminal behaviour. So that might mean working with offenders in courts, at police, in police stations or in prisons, secure hospitals. And I became a forensic psychologist almost by mistake. I'd always wanted to go into advertising. I'd fancied being an advertising executive. I could see myself writing jingles for, you know, to sell cans of beans. And I'd been told that I needed to do a psychology degree. And in my first week at Sheffield University, I had to pick other options. And I'll be absolutely straight with you. The reason why I chose law as a subsidiary to psychology was there was a really gorgeous looking guy in the queue for the law class. And I thought, I want to sit next to you in lectures. And actually, I sat behind him for three years in law lectures never plucked up the courage to actually speak to him just gazed at the back of his head so but you know 
the subject was so fascinating for me. So I suppose I lost interest in him, became very interested in the law and thought, well, how can I put law and psychology together? And the idea was, all right, I'm going to be a forensic psychologist. And somebody said to me, oh, that's no job for a woman. So that was like a red rag to a bull. Yeah, I was going to do it at that point. You say that that's no job for a woman. It really is a job for a woman going by by the percentages. Explain that to me. Uh, over, I think over 80, 85% of all forensic psychologists are women. If anything, we need more men to join the profession. I think that psychology just, just appeals to women. And I think that wanting to know the inner workings of somebody's brain and also the therapeutic side of forensic psychology really appeals to women. And, and why it doesn't appeal to men so much, I'm not quite sure. But um, if you look at the statistics for who watch true crime programmes, predominantly women. Yeah. But you are essentially, by the nature of who you're dealing with, going to put yourself at risk at some point, aren't you? Well, yes and no, because when you are working in forensic psychology, you're working in secure environments that have everything in place to keep you safe. You walk around with an alarm on your, on your belt. And if you shout or you press that alarm, then you've got people who are going to come running to, you know, to help you in whatever situation you might be in. And if necessary, they are trained in restraint. So as, as, as are you, as are you. Yes, yes. Although I've only, I've only ever used it, I think, maybe twice, once or twice, because I find that you can, you can, you can de-escalate most situations with either an impromptu comedy routine or just saying the right words you know I'm, I'm never going to want to jump on somebody if if there's any other possibility you know of getting out of the situation so um yeah I always say that the people that I work with I know exactly who they are and I know exactly what they are capable of so you don't have that luxury when you're walking down the street or even in your own home, the, the, the majority of violent assaults on women happen in their own homes. So I've never really thought of myself as being in a, in a very dangerous job. Well, I've, I've had the fortune to, to spend time in a healthcare unit in a maximum security prison. And there is an element when you are walking around that this is a different part of the prison, but there are still people who are on, on lots of medication, people who are clearly there because they have mental health issues and it's an unpredictable environment is it not yeah it's incredibly unpredictable it's what i call bouncy but i think that a lot of it is about the relationships that you build up with your i mean i don't know what to call them you know inmates or patients you know we're told to call them clients these days but that makes me sound a bit like a you know a bank clerk or a nail technician but if you build up respectful, mutually respectful relationships with, with the people that you work with, you know, you shouldn't really feel that at any moment you're going to be you're going to be violently assaulted. They are difficult environments and you've got to have your wits about you. But I'm working with people. I'm not working with crazed beasts or monsters as the you know the, the media would have you believe they are people 
But that is the perception, isn't it? And that perception is has been kind of enforced by by the media and by movies and by stories and books and everything else. Well, you never you never hear the good stories, do you? And you never get a report saying, you know, uh, on Tuesday in a healthcare unit in a maximum security prison, absolutely nothing happened. Everything was lovely. Everybody got on fine. You just hear the horror stories. So it gives you a very a very warped perception really of what goes on although i don't take away from the fact that yes violence does happen and they are unpredictable environments generally speaking though as a psychologist and as a as a female you're 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 probably safer than the prison officers because you're not in that you know role of having to turn the key at the end of the day and lock somebody in a cell and um there's often this this um, idea, you know, this honour amongst thieves is that there's a hierarchy of uh, criminals and criminal behaviour. And it's very much frowned upon for for men to be rude or be abusive to the women in the in the prison. Well, that didn't happen to you the first time you walked into. Was it was it Manchester prison was known as Strangeways? Then what happened then? Yeah, it was Strangeways back in the day. And um, I was a student and I'd gone to basically find out more about the prison environment and it was the first time that i'd stepped foot in a prison so it's very exciting for me and i was going on a tour of i think it was f-wing with um a prison officer who really didn't want to be there he'd, he'd drawn the short straw in taking me for a quick you know a quick trip but as we were walking down the landing the whole place erupted into meows shrieks of meows now yeah. you get you get this it's a term for cat it's a term for cat so work, work that one out he was basically saying there was yeah cats there was cat. a cat a female cat on a the wing cat on the wing yeah and i didn't understand it i didn't understand it because i was so naive at that point i was 20 years old and i turned to this rather grisly prison officer and said why is everybody making cat noises at me and he just he just rolled his eyes you could see that he was thinking oh you're going to be toast you're going to be toast love <laughs> but you weren't were you i mean you developed quite a tough skin but inside all the people and we're going to get some of the some of the serious cases that you've dealt with you've also had which you learned from reading the book your own personal experiences with some quite dangerous i would suggest individuals um, and that sort of kicked off when you went to Wakefield, which is a notorious prison in terms of some of the inmates that it's had. Yeah, it is known as Monster Mansion in the press. And what year did you first go there? I went there in 1996, so I'll never forget it because the Spice Girls have just had their first number one record, Wannabe. And I was a wannabe. I was a wannabe forensic psychologist and I'd actually gone to work there. Um, as a volunteer to get some experience to get my foot in the door because it's a very very competitive field so I was very excited to be there I was very naive but it was an absolute baptism of fire I was assigned a project and the project was to interview all of the men in the prison all of the inmates who had both raped and murdered a woman so this was the most misogynistic group that you can imagine that I had to interview. You're 20 years old? 20 years old, yeah, no preparation for this whatsoever. I'm amazed that this was considered appropriate. 
and I had a whole list of questions that I had to ask these men which you know basically it was to do with what they had done during their assault their sexual assault and how the victim had responded to this so I had to ask lots of questions about what they had done about sexual activity so did you digitally penetrate your victim was one of the questions and it kind of went from there and so you can imagine that this was like a call to a free adult chat line people, people would get that some of them were getting off on the questions yeah oh yeah absolutely and so that was difficult and i used to blush at that point yeah i've got red hair so i i, I flush at the the first the first embarrassment so i was kind of working my way through this this interview schedule and it, and it was it was difficult but the real problems came not with the inmates because i had a script for the inmates the real difficulties came with the prison officers because the prison officers who i felt you know the the, the ones in the uniform were the good guys so that the people that i had to watch out for were the ones in the gray sweatshirts they were the inmates they've all done these terrible things i had to keep my eye on them but in actual fact, the, the prison officers were a pretty misogynistic group at that time also. Well, more than that, they were deviant, weren't they? Some of them. Yeah, I'm not going to say all of them. Um, I wouldn't want to say that. But there was a certain wing, C-Wing, which uh, one of their, their senior officers was a man called John Hall. And it was very much um, the younger prison officers. So they, you know, were full of full of testosterone and uh, they weren't too keen to see a 21 year old girl come into the prison in what I suppose they thought was a, a position of authority even though I was there voluntarily you know so I was, I was going home and living above a, a, a chip shop in Wakefield it wasn't glamorous at all but to them I think they saw this university educated woman coming in and they were suspicious of me but yeah, there was a group of them that, frankly, they, they were deviant. And actually, it turned out that John Hall, the senior officer, while he was working at Wakefield Prison, he was abducting young girls on the way home from work. So while he was wearing his prison officer's uniform and he had his warrant card, he would tell them to get in his car. They would think that he was maybe a, a police officer or something similar. And he was sexually assaulting them and he was convicted of a number of rapes not just of, of young girls but also of women that he'd met on nights out or uh, prostitutes that he'd he'd had sex with and he he asked you out he was the first one to ask you out wasn't he well when i got there so this 21 year old very naive girl the first thing that this group of prison officers did was start running a book on who was going to be first to get me into bed and so he was, I don't know, three to one favourite. And he was the first to ask me out on a date. And actually, if I'd been a bit more savvy at that time, I might have noticed that he had a wedding ring on because he'd been married for a few short months at that time. But put it this way, he wasn't my type. No, certainly not. But you, you, did, you did have a relationship with one of the officers there that went on for some time as well. And that ended up being, being abusive as well, didn't it? You had to take him to court. I had a short relationship with a, a prison officer who I think was third or fourth to ask me out. And it very quickly became apparent that he was, he was abusive. 
but it was more what we call coercive control these days and we didn't have a name for it then he was possessive he was manipulative he, he was he was threatening you know he would absolutely terrify me for for tiny little things like if i didn't um uh, if i didn't fill the kettle from from the hot tap instead of the cold tap for some reason this would send him into a rage and i have to say that he he terrorized me throughout this this relationship and at that point i'd just moved to wakefield on my own as i say i was working voluntarily so i was technically um on the dole really and i was away from my family and away from university just in this this environment this really um don't know how to describe it really it was a strange microcosm really you're, you're, you're in this prison with all of with all of these men and you're, you're hearing terrible things day in day out i think that it, it it skews your perception of actually what is normal and what is acceptable but yeah he he terrorized me when i decided that i wanted to to leave the relationship he started showing up at um, my place of work because i'd got a job at that point as a psychology assistant in a local hospital and um to cut a, a long story short and i'm not going to go into detail but um one one night halloween night there was a knock on my door and i thought that it was trick-or-treaters so i opened the door and it wasn't trick-or-treaters it was it was him and it's quite difficult for me to talk about actually it's all right it's okay no it's but, okay what, 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 but it, it's not okay it's far from okay but while we're on the subject, you know, whether it's physical violence, whether it's m mental violence, we know that women are far more vulnerable than men are to domestic abuse. Yeah. And I was looking, one of the things that really shocked, shocked me when I read the book is um, a violent man puts a woman in hospital every three hours in the UK. Surely that is unacceptable. It is. And while we've been having lockdown. It's gone up. Yeah, it's gone up and the number of men who kill women has has increased. And this was it. I I believed this this mantra of, of Wakefield Prison that it's them and us, you know, we've got the bad guys and then we've got the good guys. The good guys are the ones in uniform. And yet it, it wasn't a stranger. It wasn't one of the inmates who who I eventually had to take to court. It was somebody that I'd entered into a relationship with, thinking that he was probably a decent, you know, a decent guy. And and this is this is the reality for women. Violence towards women is a pandemic. It really is. You also started having sort of you thought a panic attack at that point, didn't you? Is it Sheffield Railway Station? Yeah, yeah. I started I started getting anxious, which is hardly surprising because I think that you would be anxious too if 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 this was going on in, in your personal life and I I had got myself a job as a psychology assistant and I was desperately wanting to be effective in my work but I, I wanted to get away from this this abusive man you know I recognized it for what it was um and and so yeah I started to 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 get panic attacks but your mental health is so finely interwoven with your physical health so I developed something called Meniere's disease at that point, which is where you get really violent vertigo, dizzy spells. 
So there was one time at, at Sheffield train station, the first time I had a many years attack where the world literally started spinning. And that has happened to me throughout my life whenever I've got stressed. So I've always had to really work hard on trying to just keep my stress levels at, you know, at a dull roar. Did you ever think you should have gone back into advertising? Yeah, probably. Many times I wanted to just go and work, work behind the counter at Boots or something like that. But psychology is my passion. And I always, at the risk of sounding like, um, I don't know, a, a Miss World contestant, I was always motivated by wanting a world with less victims in it. That's what I've always, you know, that's, that's, that's the overall aim. And so I'd found a job where I felt effective and actually I was, I was doing good things. I remember getting actually, whilst I was a psychology assistant, a letter from an outpatient who said, thank you very much. If it weren't for you, I would have killed my wife. <laughs> well, there you go. I think I've got a 360 degree view. I've got a lot of, I won't say empathy and certainly not sympathy for offenders, but I've got compassion for offenders where, you know, where it's due. But I understand victim issues as well. And I think that's definitely something that's driven me throughout my career. Again, this, this sense of, well, I want to do uh, everything that I can do to, for example, make somebody less likely to go out there and, and re-offend and, and challenge people's beliefs, really. One of the lines of the books is not my job to identify with anyone, no matter how much I might recognise my own story in there you say that isn't that very difficult not to yeah that was in that was in relation yeah to a woman called Alison who had killed her abusive partner and obviously when I was assessing her I reflected on some of my own experiences because I'm human and of course I'm going to do that but I have to come from a position of neutrality so I'm not there to offload my psychological stuff onto onto my uh, my clients and at that point believe it or not I was not an emotional wreck yes I've certainly suffered from anxiety and have continued to suffer from anxiety at various points throughout my career but I'd I'd, I'd gone into therapy I'd had counseling and it, I was very very clear that what had happened to me was not my fault somebody had chosen to do that to me they had chosen to subject me to that so it wasn't it wasn't something that i carried around with me but the problem the problem with the lady you're talking about is alison that she had convinced herself that she was in the wrong and you and you 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 talked to her in a way to explain to her. you looked at their back history could you explain that to me how you how you went about getting what really happened to alison out there yeah, I remember looking at the crime scene photographs because they're still embedded in my in my mind somewhere. And I remember the look of, of shock, really, on on her her husband's face. It was still etched on his face, even after he'd, he'd been dead for, for a long time. And she'd actually curled up next to the body and, and just waited for people to find her. And when I went to see her in a women's a women's prison, I obviously had to get as much of her backstory as possible and she had had the most horrific horrific abuse as a result of being in this relationship I mean he, he used to strangle her he used to rape her and um, 
he used to do things to torment her because she she suffered with obsessive compulsive disorder if you want to call it that and she used to obsessively clean when she was anxious and he used to he used to mash up crisps and uh, and biscuits and scatter them around the house just to to make her believe that she was going mad and he used to say to her look at you you know you're a mad woman you're a mad woman if you tell anybody about what's happening they're not going to believe you you know your children will be taken from you so she was literally tortured tortured by him but yeah she absolutely felt that it was her own fault and she had made a decision to pick up the hammer and hit him over the head with it so I'm not going to say that she was entirely innocent she wasn't but it was at a point where she was so absolutely terrified that he was going to act like he always acted on a on a weekend and he was he was going to rape her and strangle her and she knew what was coming and she just cracked is that right yeah and it was it was after months and months of 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 struggling with um flashbacks and just trauma symptoms really and being terribly depressed and helpless he'd not allowed her to take her medication either so she was an anxious mess and at the point at which he said i've got a bottle of vodka in the garage go and get it for me she knew what that meant and she'd actually lost control of her bowels at that point because she was so terrified and she went into survival mode she went into this fight or flight mode and so many other times she'd just frozen and he'd, he'd assaulted her she'd gone into this this place of helplessness she finally picked up a hammer rather than the bottle of vodka in the garage and she walked into the lounge where he was lying on the sofa she hit him with it but she was convicted of manslaughter rather than murder which was absolutely correct on the basis of my testimony she couldn't form intent because she was struggling with what we call in legal terms an abnormality of mind so i'd written this report saying that she had this abnormality of mind because she was struggling with post-traumatic stress she had these ritualistic obsessive behaviors and also she was terribly depressed at that time but i thought to myself you know we're saying that actually she's the one who's abnormal here the bloke laying on the sofa who's raping someone and strangling them and drinking vodka he's normal yeah and yet she's having an entirely normal human response to what she's going through and i just felt there was something not quite but surely kerry also there is two sides there are two sides to every story and i'm sure always victims family felt that, that that she should have been convicted of murder no doubt yeah yeah and you know I, you can't you can't take from from victims families you know the anger that they feel and uh, just the the devastation that they feel when when somebody that they love is is taken in in this awful brutal and violent way so you know they're entitled to feel what whatever they want to feel well i, I know this is this is a, an interview and it's very short but you, you tell me about the word psychopath it's it's been it's been well it's been played with messed around with um and it's and it's used often as a, as a joke isn't it so can you explain to me yeah. what the definition of a psychopath actually is and why so many of them aren't violent i mean 
it's only a small a very small amount isn't it well i wish i could tell you very clearly what a psychopath is because there's so much debate amongst psychologists about it but what we believe is it's people whose brains are different whether they've developed this way or whether they're born this way we don't know but they don't have the same level of emotional processing so their limbic system and their paralimbic system has less gray matter in it so if you don't process emotions in quite the same way as other people it means that you don't experience them in quite the same way and actually that can be very very uh, useful say for example you're in the military yep you're an assassin yeah you're an assassin you have to make fast decisions you have to not feel fear you have to be brave and courageous so we know that there are very successful psychopaths in the military there are successful if you want to call them that psychopaths in in politics for sure and in lots of different areas of life uh, middle management uh, i think there's something like 20 percent of all senior level managers show psychopathic traits so this lack of of, of emotion is it a lack of empathy or a lack of emotion? Yeah, it's um, it's lack of empathy, but you have to you have to boil empathy down into two components. So there is emotional empathy, which is feeling what somebody feels. So um, you know, if you were to get very distressed in front of me, I would I would feel that you were upset, and that would you know, that would register in my body, and I would feel that I wanted to respond to that in a caring way. So that's feeling what somebody feels. And then there's intellectual empathy. And that is knowing that somebody's upset and why they're upset. And in actual fact, psychopaths have very, very good intellectual empathy. They understand it, but they don't feel it. And it's that lack of feeling that then allows them to behave in either callous ways or, if you're in the military, in incredibly brave and, and useful ways. I've, I've seen sort of like a general attitude that, that that particular client, patient, prisoner is trouble and he's faking it. He's not doing it because he's actually ill. He's a faker. And you talk about faking in there and how you look for fakery. And why would, um, for instance, uh, a prisoner fake illness, mental illness? Well, I'm, you do get malingerers, and there is a story in the book about somebody who was um, attempting to convince us all that he was psychotic, and he was doing it because he wanted to be able to tell the court that he was insane and therefore not guilty of, of the, the many drug-related offences that he'd been, been charged with. So you do get malingerers, um, but they're, they're pretty rare, to be honest. And also, don't you run... A very big risk risk that if you are found to be insane, you could be detained indefinitely. Well, this is it. Malingerers, be careful what you wish for, because what can happen is that you are transferred out of the prison service and you go into mental health services where you are sectioned under the Mental Health Act. And if you're sectioned under the Mental Health Act, that can be indefinite. So I know people that go in and, you know, they are sectioned still you know 20 25 years later and what happens is that this is it once once somebody's got a label and whether that's a label of being trouble or whether it's a label of somebody who is psychotic everything that they do 
is viewed through that through that lens. So this particular um, person, he thought that he was onto a cushy number, and he, and he was pretty much because he'd been transferred to to a hospital setting. And unbeknown to us, he was actually having an affair with one of the agency nurses, and they were planning his escape with it with a with a black and decker drill. With a black and decker drill, yeah, at night time. But uh, <laughs> so he he was doing a, a really um, I felt unconvincing job of of showing us that he was suffering from um, from voices, but. It was interesting reading the um, the notes that were written up about him by the nursing staff each evening. So it was things like, oh, you know, he's, he's wearing dark glasses, which is often seen as a sign of psychosis because things do of, often get very bright when you're struggling with psych psychosis. And so occasionally you'll find people who wear dark glasses. But it was July and it was summer. So, you know, what what's strange about that? The fact that he was... Um, not really very talkative, didn't really want to talk to people in the evening. That was felt to be signs of him being um, antisocial and, and maybe that's because he's troubled. No, it's because he was busy planning his escape and talking to his girlfriend on the phone that he'd smuggled in. So you have to be, you have to be very careful. Once you apply a label to somebody, everything that they do is then viewed, as I say, through that lens. So he's got, he's playing the game that I am I'm hearing voices and I'm this and I'm yeah. that and because that label is sort of like where he is everything that he did reinforced that to some of the staff. Yeah, exactly. So I can't think of um, all of the examples now, but that they're in the book. But he pretty much pulled the wool over over everybody's eyes, but um, not mine. I'm I'm pleased to say, but he he did eventually make his escape. And by the time he was found, all the charges had been dropped against him anyway. So then he made a miraculous recovery. You do, you do get these cases. And he's very happy living in the south of France. Probably, I would think so, with his... With his um, Staff nurse. His girlfriend, yeah. Um, one of the ways of working out whether people are, are faking, whether they're lying, whether this is in an interview situation, with a criminal that's suspected of murder, um, is the three two seven ruling? Can you explain that to me in simple terms? Yeah. So working with that particular patient made me very interested in the psychology of deception. And if you're a forensic psychologist, you're going to get lied to, and you're going to get lied to a lot. Now, uh, my my colleagues at um, the Emotional Intelligence Academy in in Manchester. I've done loads and loads of research into signs of deception because there's no simple way of telling whether somebody's lying. There's no what we call a Pinocchio's nose. So you know that you'll read in magazines that if somebody's lying, you know their eyes go up to the to the left or their shoulder shifts or something like that. There's no there's no simple way. Everybody's different, but there's something that we call the three two seven rule. So what we look for are clusters of what we call tells and they can they can be anything they can be facial you know facial expressions they can be something to do with the body language they might be something physiological um so for example uh Stuart Hazel who killed Tia Sharp when he was giving an interview about it to Mark Williams Thomas the tops of his ears went very very red the capillaries in his ears and that was a sign of stress for him. 
it's very very particular to him so we look for for clusters of these tells three of them over at least two of six communication channels in a period of seven seconds so it gets very very technical so we're not we're not looking for somebody touches their nose or anything like that we're looking for a whole cluster of things that happen within seven seconds that tell us that we need to explore this further because they might be telling a lie and and you experienced that with with uh, a guy that was i think he was in prison for for, for burglary but it was believed that he'd possibly murdered murdered a man in his bed right yeah he had um he'd he'd murdered a, an old man in his bed during the course of a burglary and uh, what was very specific about this series of burglaries was that often the um the person in the household had woken up to 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 find him standing next to the bed just staring at them while they slept and if they woke he would ask them to put their hands on the back of their head and then he would just stare at them a while longer and i think it was just a control thing with him and uh, this 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 old gentleman was uh, was found and he'd, he'd been battered to death and i think what had happened was he'd actually not complied with the request to put his hands on the back of his head he'd, he'd challenged um this this man hogan and uh, this is this is what it had resulted in but he was um very very difficult to interview because he was very much in control of himself and he would even wait a few beats and he would take a deep breath before he answered any questions but we'd come up with what we call the silver bullet question which is a question that somebody doesn't necessarily expect and i should be very careful here because uh, when you're doing police interviews you know the the intention is not to play mind games with people you see that on tv but you know the cat and mouse games that, that happen in detective series they they don't happen in real police interview rooms but um you know we do like to watch people's reactions on the 327 yeah yeah so um we we asked him a particular question and Im immediately his whole breathing pattern that he'd been trying very carefully to regulate changed and his whole body language shifted and he became very very evasive and so we kind of pieced it all together and he actually led us to the to the to the bit of evidence that we needed um in order to secure a conviction and um we very much did that by by being led by him allowing him to take control of the interview but watching where there were these these psychological tells was he a psychopath do you think i i don't know whether he was a psychopath he was somebody who liked to to be in control and he was somebody who liked to be in charge and it emerged that actually what happened was he'd, he'd he'd battered this man to death in his bed but then he'd lifted him out of the bed and he'd actually stood with him and looked at himself holding him in the mirror because he just wanted to have this moment of look what i have done and it was that knowledge that he'd done that that we, we questioned him about and we, we got so much um psychological information from from the way that he responded to it and he's not the first person to have liked to hold his victims up close to him well no i used to get regular phone calls from dennis nielsen dennis nielsen was somebody that i'd met in the prison service 
serial killer if, if you know if people don't know he used to phone me regularly because i'd i'd appeared in a couple of tv documentaries talking about him and one thing dennis nielsen likes to do is talk about himself and so whenever he saw me on tv talking about him he would he would ring up to to, to basically to give me his opinion and he would talk about his offenses and he told me about how he he described it as um a conundrum for him uh was that he didn't really want to kill people but yeah he got so much satisfaction from it that he felt that he was addicted to it and he couldn't he couldn't control himself and he said that it wasn't the killing that was particularly satisfactory for him it was a particular moment afterwards and that was when he was able to hold the lifeless body of his victim and look in a mirror so again it was this wanting to see this image of himself and remember it as being you know supreme and and powerful with the victim as completely passive he would describe them as you know floppy and and limp and pale and, and and there was him able to hold them in whatever position he wanted to while he looked in a mirror and was that sexual do you think oh gosh yeah it was it, it was very much sexual but i always say that you look for the sexual needs and the emotional needs and i always think that the sexual needs are, are secondary to the emotional needs so for, for nielsen who'd been bullied as a child because he was gay and he was effeminate and the boys at school used to you know used to 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 mock him and 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 exclude him this was him being able to be this masculine powerful in his own mind figure now there's something very very wrong isn't there you have to kill somebody to be able to do that and continue to kill people yeah but that's that's how it how it was for him and then of course he had a body that he had absolute power and control over hold up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Cool fact: a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Do you find it difficult? I know that in the book you, you talk about somebody who, who went back to the decaying corpse and pushed it and moved the body into kind of sexual poses listening to that kind of testimony looking at those kind of, of photographs does that not have a profound effect on you yes 
I think it does. I, I've had uh, therapy throughout my career. I have something called um, EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. It's, it's used for PTSD, isn't it? It's used for PTSD and it, it can be incredibly effective. And I actually do it on myself sometimes. Um, but there was one period um, around, around 2013 where I think that the majority of my referrals had been men who had sexually abused children or men who were downloading images of child abuse on the internet. And I was having to look at the material that they, they'd viewed and just hear horror stories constantly. And I think what was difficult for me was that I never got to find, to find out the ending to the story. I never knew whether the children who appeared in these awful graphic abuse images had been found and were safe now. And it did, you know, it, it did have a toll on me. And I, I went to watch um, Mark Bridger give evidence in his trial for the murder of April Jones. And I remember feeling something that I hadn't felt before because as a psychologist, you know, you've got to take a step back. You've got to have a level of detachment. And I'm always very much in, in psychologist mode. So I've got questions that I want to answer. You know, I'm thinking about things academically and intellectually. So I suppose I'm doing what psychopaths do. I'm, I'm treating the material intellectually rather than allowing myself to feel it. But watching Mark Bridger, I felt so angry. And I think that it wasn't just him, although what he'd done was absolutely, you know, it, it was, it just was indescribably cruel. And to have never have, have come clean about what he'd done to April or how he disposed of her body. But I think that it was just the accumulative effect of everything that I'd seen. It, it just seemed to be embodied in him. And I just felt that I couldn't work with with these abusive men anymore. I just felt that I'd reached saturation point. Is that, is, sorry, is that one of the reasons why you stopped doing that? Is that that moment? I, yeah, it was. Um, and it's the reason why I went to work with women. I went to work in a women's hospital for, um, for just over three years. I needed a break from it. You know, there gets a point where you just, you just can't take take in any more of this and I was finding myself waking up in the middle of the night and 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 mulling over well you know what happened to, to April Jones and did you know did he do you know x y and z that I'd seen downloaded from the internet or that I'd heard other men had done and it just became too there were too many questions I think my imagination started to to go into open how do you feel that the the criminal justice system works with the health system, particularly the mental health system in our prisons? Are they at one with each other? It, no, no. It, 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 well, there are pockets of good practice, but they are, they are pockets. And I think that it can very much be potluck whether somebody... Um, ends up in a hospital or whether they end up in a prison environment and we know that many people in the prison environment are suffering with psychosis and I just uh, 
worked on a case a, um, a few months back of somebody who was very clearly psychotic at the time that they'd committed an offence, but they have to instruct their legal team and they were deemed to have capacity and they didn't want it raised in court. So it was actually never talked about in court. And this person was sent off to prison and he should have gone into mental, mental health services. I'm not sure what the solution is though, because there's so much overlap really. I think that um, prisons should be run a bit more like hospitals because prisons are brutal places, very, very difficult places. And I think that if you don't have mental health problems when you arrive there, you are very likely to have them by the time that you leave. And I think, I think that I, I, yeah, I can't, I can't back that up, dispute that or agree with you. But I think it also that's possibly true for a lot of the people that work there, whether they're in the health area or whether they're in the actual prison itself. I mean, they're, incre they're incredibly stressful, stressful places to be, aren't they? Yeah, and, and, and that's a, another subject entirely, isn't it? It's how we take care of staff and we manage their, you know, their stress and what they have to take home with them on a, on a daily basis. But, you know, prisons are a real pressure cooker environment and it's very difficult to make them therapeutic because, of course, we've got so many people warehoused together. You know, the sheer number of people in a prison makes it difficult to make it an environment that is um, going to be conducive to, to rehab. and it's it's something that we don't demand from our politicians again because we think that the right thing to do is to be tough on criminals but i think that what we do is we we create these warehouses of suffering and warehouses of distress and then when we release people from prison we expect that that isn't going to have taken its toll and that isn't then going to be taken out into the real world and i really am of the belief that 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 largely not entirely of course i know some people that have had good prison experiences but largely i think that prisons create more problems than they solve and i think that they create more future victims these podcasts um are about discussing people's toughest moments and i think you've <laughs> you've been living one for 20 odd years since you <laughs> um I, but you know i have to ask i mean i at the beginning of this I didn't see that you dedicated the, the book to your dad. I mean, was losing your dad, but you've also had, um, again, you know, in your own private life. Yeah, and I wouldn't call that my private life as such because I didn't invite him in in any way, shape, or form. But Ap apologies for using the. I was uh, apropos your work life. He wasn't part of your work life, though, was he? Well, he wasn't. He he was somebody who saw me appear on TV documentaries talking about crime and criminals. Yeah, be careful doing that. Don't get into TV documentaries. Oh, if you saw my Twitter inbox, I know it's um, it's quite amazing the kind of uh, responses that you get from people when you appear on TV. And he was somebody who actually said in court that he felt because I appeared on TV, I was a public figure and therefore fair game for him to do whatever it was that he wanted. And so he started to stalk me probably before I was aware of it, the first I became aware of it was when he contacted me saying that he had set up websites in my name and he wanted me to contribute to these websites with photographs and information. And of course, this is, isn't something that, I'm not Britney Spears, I don't need a, a website, thank you very much. 
So um, it wasn't something that I wanted to be involved in. And he got politely told to please go away. And he started to post things on his website about me. And, you know, I won't go into detail, but a lot of it got quite um, sexual. So he was talking about the size of my boobs or the size of my bottom. And he was talking about how he looked in certain clothes. And I realized that I don't appear on TV in these clothes. And in fact, largely I'm a talking head. So there's none of my bottom on TV at all. So how does he know, you know, why has he come up with that? So he'd been following you, he'd been observing you. Yeah, he'd been observing me. And at that point I moved out of my house because I was that terrified. And um, I just couldn't get the police to take it seriously. Um, as far as they were concerned, it was a dispute over websites. That's all it was. And at that point in 2011, stalking actually wasn't defined in law as a separate offence. We only had harassment laws. So I had to take him to court in order to have these websites removed, which cost me a huge amount of money. He came and he represented himself. And I'm sure that it was like a great day out for him. And I'd never, never laid eyes on him, which was the terrifying thing because of course, whenever I was out of my house, whenever there was a man next to me in the post office, I would be thinking, well, is, is this him? I, I don't know what he looks like, it could be. Um, but in court, I'd been in the uh, cafeteria with my legal team before we'd, we'd gone into the hearing. And I hadn't realized that he'd actually sat next to me. So I didn't realize who he was until I walked into court and, and had that moment. But, you know, I'm sure that he, he enjoyed himself that day. He got told to take the websites down. And I thought that that was the last that I'd heard of him. But fast forward to 2016, and he started writing to me again. And this time he'd actually, this is actually quite funny. It wasn't funny at the time, but he wanted to take me to a business court for non-payment of a bill because he'd actually written out an itemized bill for the time that he'd put into creating his websites and stalking me. He what? So he wanted to charge you for stalking you? So I always say it's like Harold Shipman charging for palliative care. He'd even, um, he'd even included his travel expenses. It, it turned dark, didn't it? It got darker than that. It did get darker. I mean, it's dark, dark enough, but it got darker, didn't it? When I realised that he was taking me to court for this, part of me thought, well, this is ridiculous. But then another part of me felt, you know, I've gone to work with women and I'd stopped being on television programmes. And generally what I was doing, I was trying to keep my head down so as not to attract the attention of either him or people like him. So you become a victim? Yeah. And it dawned on me that this was this was like being in an abusive relationship because these are the dynamics of an abusive relationship. You keep your head down and you hope that the next, you know, the next flare up doesn't come. But it's not your behaviour that's the problem. It's his behaviour that's the problem. And I felt really, really angry, a little bit angry with myself, to be honest. Um, and I just thought, no, I'm not going to have this. I'm not going to be a victim. I'm certainly not going to be 
colluding with the dynamics of an abusive relationship with a man that I've never met and I, I have no interest in whatsoever. But it did, it did get darker. Um, I found my cat dead. And it looked like he'd been thrown over my garden fence. And I was very confused about it at the time. And it wasn't until a few days later that I actually went round to the other side of the fence and saw that somebody had written Jill Dando on it. Of course, Jill Dando, the Crime Watch presenter who was murdered on her doorstep. So I felt that was very much a threat to my, to my life. And it was, it was a really, a really difficult moment because as I say, I didn't feel safe outside my home, but then I didn't feel safe inside my home either. So there was nowhere really to go. And it was so ironic that I'd worked with these dangerous people in, you know, that was your first question, wasn't it? How do you work in these dangerous environments and look after your own physical safety? I felt safe at work. I felt safer at work than I did in my own home. And it was, it was very, very difficult. And I just thought to myself, I'm, I'm not having this. I was incensed. I was angry at that point. And I think you can harness anger and really turn it into something useful. So I kind of harnessed my warrior spirit and I thought, I'm not going to take this. I'm going to make sure the police take it seriously. But um, I also decided that I was going to join some uh, campaigners who were trying to make the laws on stalking more robust because 94% of all women who are killed are stalked in one way, shape or form by the person who kills them. I've actually been stalked. Um, not in, you know, I had someone actually break wow. into my flat. He kicked the door off the flat and got in under false pretenses through the security or below, yeah. And it is, I mean, he had videos that he wanted to show me of the things he'd like to do to me and he wrote letters to me. And, and, and I know, and here I am, Big Butch uh, Ross, it still had a uh, an effect on me um and, and and also the fact that he you know he got into where i lived um he was arrested and i did not pursue charges against him but i tell you what he managed to do the way that they play with your head and i've not told many people this before even after i moved he sent me another letter it was a, a letter of apology but it was also a, a reminder that he knew where i had moved to and he was getting my address from the electoral register. Yeah, and it's very difficult to, be co to come off that, that register because I'd, I'd tried it myself. It's very, very difficult. But the, 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 fact, the fact being that, you know, not on the same level, he never killed one of my pets. Well, if he did, we can't say that. No yeah, doubt. I can't say that he did, but I don't think the cat chose that moment to die. No, of course not. Of course not. And, and uh, you know, uh, whoever wrote Gildando on your wall, what? kid having a joke it was meant for a threat clearly a threat how did the police respond to that um well in 2011 they were absolutely useless i have to say and i, I say that with regret because you know i work with the police myself and they can be absolutely amazing i don't think it was that they didn't care they just didn't have an understanding really of stalking behaviors and they didn't know what what was available to them what you know legislation was available to them when we got to 2016, stalking had been defined in law by that point. Um, but yet he was arrested 
they took his computer away from him and they they um they didn't bother to actually look at it they returned it to him without looking at it even though he'd said that he had extensive files on that computer relating to me which he shouldn't have he shouldn't have had he had no reason to um he was given a harassment warning which is a little bit of a slap on the wrist you know if you do it again then we'll take this seriously and it did seem to have an effect on him but i did discover later that he'd been given harassment warnings for his conduct towards other women previously so this is a pattern here which we often see he's a serial stalker or a serial abuser of women and they didn't join those dots and i don't think that they took it as far as they should have done because he should have ended up in court uh, being charged with stalking and i found out that this was this is often the case and your advice particularly to any woman that finds themselves in that situation what would what would you, what advice would you give i think that it all changed for me when i got angry and i said look i'm being stalked and i'm not going to be fobbed off here I'm going to shout it from the rooftops and i was very lucky because um i i had a platform so what i was able to do was i was able to start going back on tv crime programs and i was able to start talking to press about being stalked how that felt how the laws were inadequate and i joined various campaigns so i got involved with stalking awareness week and the susie lamplew trust who run the um the National Stalking Helpline. So, you know, I put the feelers out for people that could help me and there's always people who can help you. And I, just, I stopped um, keeping my head down and being quiet and being the, you know, the, the silent victim, because that's exactly what they want from you. They want you to be silent. I started making a loud noise and that's, that's a, a much more empowering position to be in. Has he gone away now? I don't know is the question to that. I'm aware of him. Yes, I guess you never, you never do, do you? You never do. Yeah, that, that's the other thing, is it? That's the, that's the other sort of psychological of it. You don't know, but what I do know, and this is very similar to um, your guy writing to you at your new address, is that he continues to register the domain names of the websites that he was using, so kerrydanes.co.uk, kerrydanes.com. And he was doing that uh, up to last year, I've not checked this year, but um, there's no reason for him to, to maintain those domain names, and I certainly don't want them, so it's not preventing me from having them. I think it's just that little message that he he's still, still out there. But again, as you said, it's that not responding, you haven't checked, uh, you haven't checked this, this uh this year so in a way it's 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 going back to some of the training that you talk about in the book which is which is not reacting but wasn't the case with old was it maurice oh yeah maurice well when i was very young and very uh fresh fresh around the gills is that a saying i'm not too sure it is now it is now yeah but i was i was pretty new to the job and uh, i used to have lunch every every tuesday and thursday on one of the annexes of the secure unit that i worked worked at and one of the patients there was a very old man he was in his 80s and he'd he'd killed two women and actually they were very sadistic murders he was a sadist he used to like to watch shock and horror on the faces of his victims 
and um, he had a prosthetic eye. So he came up behind me once at lunch and in quite literally the blink of an eye, popped his prosthetic eyeball out into my soup, which was Heinz cream of tomato. So you can imagine the spatter. I'm looking down and there's an eyeball staring back at me. My soup is literally looking at me. And when you, when you see it, even though I knew that it was glass, so it's really just a giant marble, isn't it? But that's not what your body registers. As far as I was concerned, this is a jellied piece of somebody's anatomy in my soup. And of course I screamed the place down to start with, which gave him the reaction that he wanted. So we call it offence paralleling behaviour. He was able to get that same look of shock and horror from me that he, he got a thrill out of seeing with his victims that he killed. So I, I had to learn very, very quickly not to respond to this. And he did it quite a few times. And what would happen was I would literally just spoon the eyeball out put it to the side of my plate and carry on eating. Oh. I know it's gross. Wasn't there a little bit of Maurice that attached to that eyeball when it popped out? I don't want to think about it. I don't want to think, I'm still here, so I haven't been poisoned. But that, that was the only way to deal with it, was not to give him the reaction. And then eventually he stopped doing it, started doing it to other people instead. But, but also that, that, is, that, is, that is systematic of the way a child often behaves. A child will keep doing something as long as it gets a reaction. Yeah. Well, any, any parent of a toddler will know that sometimes you really have to bite the inside of your mouth and just not give that reaction, even though it's really, really difficult. And I think that as a psychologist working in these environments, to some degree, you know, you're, you're kind of a, you're a parental figure in a way you're the authority figure you're there to provide boundaries but you you know you're also there to to be the role model and, and and not give the response that is being provoked from you at times your book is also kind of kind of it is witty in places and some people may find that a little bit dark how important is that that dark gallows sense of humor uh, for anybody working in the environment that you work in it's, it's essential because you're not going to survive without it. And for me to have been true to myself and also true to showing people into the world that I inhabit, I had to include humour because this, this is how so many, talk to anybody who works in emergency services and they will tell you that they laugh at the darkest, most inappropriate things. You know, so that humour that's so wrong, it's kind of right in that moment. You have to be careful with it. Yeah, you, you know, it's not something that necessarily needs to be shared too widely, but it had to be included in the book. It really did. Yeah, I think, as you say, that is a, a human way of, of dealing oh, with it's a traumatic release. situation. It's a tension release. So often you'll find that in, in the, the, the most, you know, tense situations or just after something terrible has happened the staff will decompress by just making the most god-awful jokes about whatever they've just been through it's it's a ritual almost it's a rite of passage and often it can be and i know this having witnessed it there are lots of things that can come through the slits in the doors and it's sometimes brown and it's sometimes green and it sometimes yeah, lands on you and if you and if that's happened three or four times in your day, you're going to have to have a sense of humour, right? 
Yeah, you're absolutely going to have to. And I remember being at Wakefield and walking down the side of A-Wing and various bodily fluids would, would come out of the windows. Silence of the Lambs type time. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit, I have to say. But dead pigeons were the favourite because the pigeons would, would, would go in the windows, which had all been broken out by the inmates. And occasionally you'd get an angry inmate that would crack their necks and then wait for the nearest member of staff to throw it at. So, yeah, I've had, I've had a few things land on me. Kerry, what have you got coming up next? Well, hot off the press, because I literally finished filming just yesterday a new series of Faking It, Tears of a Crime for Quest Red and Discovery. So we were talking about uh, fakers and malingerers and the psychology of deception. So that's a programme where we actually pull apart the the different ways that people lie during police interviews when they've committed a dreadful offence. So it's quite a fascinating series. So I hope people will watch that. Can I just say, Kerry, uh, thank you for allowing us to listen to um, your story. It's been absolutely fascinating and enlightening. Um, thank you for your time. No, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of The Kempcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate and review. You can find me on Twitter at Ross Kemp and on Instagram at Ross Kemp TV. This has been a Freshwater and the Chance of Collective production. Thanks to the team and One Fine Play. And until the next episode, goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.